Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Dan Salfrank is an FDNY lieutenant assigned to Ladder Company 4 in Midtown Manhattan. He previously served with Ladder Companies 169 and 176, both in the borough of Brooklyn. Within the FDNY, Dan is a battalion delegate for the Uniformed Fire Officers Association, a member of the FDNY Pipes and Drums, and serves as a performance leader for the FDNY's Mental Performance Initiative. Dan served as a crash rescue firefighter with the 111th Fighter Wing of the Pennsylvania Air National Guard. He has a Master of Public Administration from John Jay College in New York City. Dan also serves as a Tactical Leadership Advisor for Leadership Under Fire. Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Dan, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I have a lot of questions for you, so I'm going to get right to it. But welcome to the show. Thank you, Patty. I'm very happy to be here. Dan, we've talked about this, but can you share with our listeners, when did you know you wanted to become a New York City firefighter? Uh, it was definitely something I knew from a, a pretty young age. Um, my dad had started out as a volunteer fireman in suburban Philly uh, back in the early 70s, and I really kind of grew up around the firehouse. Um, so there was really never a, a question in what I wanted to do. Um, I think at some point there was a little bit of a question on how it was going to look, uh, but overwhelmingly it was there was never really a question I wanted to be a fireman, particularly in, in, in a large city. I took the test in um, Philadelphia, uh, and then I took the 2002 FDNY test, and I also took the NYPD test. Oh, wow. Um, all of the intentions on getting on this job. And then fortunately or unfortunately, I suppose, however you want to look at it, I turned down the NYPD job in a nod so I could finish college, uh, which retrospectively, I'm very glad I did. I finally got called in November of 2006. It was funny. My mom, she kind of always has made fun of me for having always wanting something like the biggest and the best of something. <laughs> and I suppose what's bigger and better than being a New York City fireman. I so, hear that. That's excellent. And Dan, you enlisted in the Pennsylvania Air National Guard in August 2001. What was the impetus for your service? My family had a culture of service to, to, to a large extent. And I grew up about a mile and a half away from the Willow Grove Naval Air Station. And I grew up just watching the jets and the airplanes and everything like that and helicopters flying over every single day all the time. And I was just always enamored by it. I've always been interested in the military and wanted to be a part of it. I just, again, didn't really know how that was going to look. Then after I turned 18, it became a little bit more of a serious thought. Mm -hmm. I started sort of talking to recruiters and, and, and trying to feel out my options. And I found the, the, the Pennsylvania National Guard, and I found that there was the opportunity to um, be a firefighter for the Air Force. And that way I could kind of sort of get the best of all the worlds. I could be a firefighter, I could be in the military, and given the fact that my date of enlistment was August 21st of 2001, mm -hmm. um, I thought that completing college would be something I could do simultaneous with all of that. And now, naturally, things changed about three weeks after that. Very uh, wow. severely changed. 
but going back, I, um, I, I started talking to the recruiters, and when I went up to the, to the base where, with the 111th Fighter Wing, the recruiter was great, showed me the, the, the aircraft. We had A-10s, took me to the firehouse. Uh, as I got to talk to the guys, the majority of them were all Philadelphia firemen, and the culture there was very much that of a typical city firehouse kitchen. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew pretty much right away that uh, that was what I wanted to do. They're coincidentally, actually, the first person that sort of I talked to uh, and, and who showed me around. He wasn't a Philadelphia fireman at the time. He is now, and he works in Rescue One in Philly. But he's also now basically my cousin-in-law. Um, so it was one of those things that's one of the very first people I met is uh, very much in my life still. So it, it was, it's been, it was pretty neat. Speaking of your family, does military service run in your family? It does, actually. It was pretty unique opportunity to uh, actually put this all down on paper and really kind of look at it. My dad was in the army. He joined the army in 1967 and he deployed to Vietnam in January 68, which put him in country pretty much at the onset of the Tet Offensive. And he served with the 71st Air Defense Artillery Regiment in South Vietnam uh, in the area of like Cameron Bay and Han Tre Island. So that was always one of those things growing up that like just knowing my dad was in Vietnam and he was in the army. It was always one of those things I always look back upon. Um, but then also my grandfather, he was in the army post-Korea. He was in from 56 to 59. And then um, my great-grandfather served in the South Pacific during the Okinawa campaign mm-hmm. uh, on a landing craft support ship. His rank was actually fireman first class, but firemen then really served more in the engine room, not so much putting fires up. And uh, then my great-great-grandfather was a member of the Lancashire Fusiliers in the um, British Army during World War I. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a great uncle who served in the United States Army Air Corps and was present in London uh, during the Blitz in 1940. Wow. That's incredible. Like, did you know all of this? Like, was this infused in your upbringing or is this something that in adulthood you've, like you said, you put it down on paper and sort of outlined the timeline there? It was a, yeah, it was a little of both, to be honest with you. Um, my dad, that was always something that I, like I said, that I always knew and was just always sort of omnipresent growing up. And then my, my grandfather, uh, knowing he was in the army and, he always spoke of like others in the military, like his, mm-hmm. his father, uh, but it was never one of those things. That was one of the things more in adulthood once I finally started really digging down um, and started doing like some research into the genealogy of the family and whatnot. Um, I found some more of that information out, which I thought was really, really uh, interesting. Particularly, I think the, uh, my great, great grandfather in um, World War One with the Lancashire Fusiliers, I think is very cool. Definitely. And circling back to the FDNY, you mentioned you joined the ranks in 2006 and served in Ladder Company 169 in Brighton Beach and then Ladder Company 176, which is also in Brooklyn. Who were some of the leaders, officers, and senior men who positively impacted your development as a young member of the FDNY? To start, I guess, chronologically, when I was in 169, uh, Ladder 169 is quartered with engine 246 um, in Brighton Beach for uh, most people who've never heard of Brighton Beach is really just adjacent to Coney Island. Um, so uh, it's, it's on, on the far side of Brooklyn from um, pretty much directly opposite where like the Brooklyn Bridge side is. Mm-hmm. And um, the captain of Engine 246 was at the time was named Mike DeVoy. And I think hands down, he's been one of the most influential people in my fire service career. There's really not a day I go to work and I don't think of a lesson learned from Mike DeVoy, uh, that something he's taught me. He, he really focused on 
the basics, just foundational elements, and then um, reaffirm the importance of the just engine company work. And another thing that people that know him might think is a, an interesting comment is he really focused a lot on empathy, how, how we treat those people that we help and how we interact with them and reminding us that if we're there, they're probably not having a good day and we're there to make a, a bad situation better. Um, and he, he was really excellent with a lot of that stuff. He worked in, in, in great places in, in Brooklyn in the 80s and 90s. He started out in um, Engine 290 and Ladder 103. He was a lieutenant in two, Engine 255 and then ultimately ended up as a captain at 246. It was funny because I was never actually in his technical chain of command, even though I mean, it was the same firehouse, but I was never a member of 246 where he was the captain of. But it really um, raises the point where it's important to kind of know your audience and know who might be listening mm-hmm. and the impact uh, of who, who, who you might actually be impacting, whether it be positive or negative. Um, and in his case, it was, it was very positive. Mm-hmm. He did just crazy drills that build guys' confidence, build their abilities and things like that. He would take the engine down to the beach and have them advance and open operating two and a half inch hose line in the sand, which is a, a, a challenge in the best of conditions and in the sand is even exponentially more difficult. Just things like that. His lessons were timeless. Um, he was staunch in the way he did things. There's no question about that. And he recognized the importance of that particular time that to take a, a Jim McNamara line that the FDNY was on wounded knee and we were in a process of rebuilding post 9-11. And mm-hmm. he realized that we had a lot of very young, inexperienced members of the firehouse and he knew that it was his duty and responsibility to the future of the FDNY and the future of the city of New York, really, right. to uh, train us the best he possibly could. And then in 2013, right after Sandy, I had the opportunity to transfer to Ladder 176. That was in a different neighborhood, a little bit more traditional Brooklyn-type neighborhood in the terms of, like, just the housing stock, brownstones, tenements, things like that. And um, when I got there, I had about six and a half years in the fire department. So, again, my foundation was what it was, for better and for worse. <laughs> and um, I got to 176, and there was one particular guy. His name is Eamon. He's a, he's currently a lieutenant now. He always wanted to know what you did at fires, why you did it, how you did it. He had absolutely zero problems of telling you and correcting you when you weren't really up to par. And I always thought it was interesting because he was one of the last probies that um, Captain Vigiano had before he retired mm-hmm. in 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was unique because the guys who broke – I'm sorry, the guys really who Captain Vigiano broke in – for the mm-hmm. ones who broke in Eamon. And like that transition, tr- like the tradition and legacy really translated and was passed down even to when I got there, just in the way, the way Eamon acted as one of the senior guys in 176. Mm-hmm. And I really thought the last one would be uh, George Guinan. Um, yeah. He was also mm-hmm. uh, referenced in the uh, Captain Bidiana podcast. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant Guinan has been in 176 basically since 1991. And he's really been in a 4-4 battalion since 1979. So he's been there a very, very long time. He he was originally assigned to Engine 231 and then transferred to Ladder 120. Was promoted in 1991, bounced for a short time, and had the good fortune of landing back in Ladder 176, which is also part of the uh, 4-4 Battalion. Mm-hmm. And there is no doubt that Captain Vigiano was a tremendous influence on Lieutenant Guinan for really his entire career, given the fact that Captain Vig worked in Ladder 103 and Rescue 2, and then where Lieutenant Guinan was in 231 and 120, that's kind of the hub of uh, where, where, where everything was at going on. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately when Captain Vigiano landed in 176, still in the neighborhood, 
and then ultimately Lieutenant Guinan ended up working alongside of him in 176. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the leadership lessons that, um, and attention to detail that Captain Vigiano instilled in himself and in the company was also instilled in Lieutenant Guinan. And uh, so when I transferred to 176, there was zero questions. Now, this is obviously 14 years after Captain Vigiano retired, but there was no question that the influence that Captain Vigiano had on 176 was prevalent and, and, and present and that Lieutenant Guinan did everything in his power to really instill those lessons that he learned and, and pass them on down the lines to us. Um, mm -hmm. it, was, it, was, it, was, it was Lieutenant Guinan's company at that particular point in time. He was a senior lieutenant and there was no question about it. Being the fact that 176 was organized in November of 1972 and George Guinan got there in 1991, he's effectively been there for 30 of its 49 years. And 12 years prior to that, he was also in the same battalion. He's been to more than 30,000 alarms in the city, predominantly in that Brownsville and Bushwick neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that I learned from him, um, which I think was also quite evident in, in Captain DeVoy, was that uh, he wasn't necessarily there to be your friend. He was really there to lead you, to take you to fires, to teach you and to mentor you. And I think mm -hmm. there were excellent lessons to, uh, to take away from them. I love asking every guest that question, you know, who impacted you as a young professional, whatever area you're in. And I always learn something new. And I honestly don't think that anybody has used the word empathy yet in answering that question. So I, I'm happy that you just shared all of that. And there's so much value in it. And for context for our listeners, you mentioned Captain Vigiano and George Guinan. And uh, we do have a two-part series remembering Captain John Vigiano that explored the life and legacy of him. I'm curious if any of Captain Vigiano's practices and routines are still part of the company's structure. I would imagine that they have to be. I've been out of 176 now for uh, a little over four years, which is just mind-blowing to me that it's been that fast already. <laughs> I, I would imagine that certainly there are, there are definitely some guys, like senior guys there, Timmy Lee and a handful of other guys who were there concurrently with Kevin Vigiano and certainly Lieutenant Gunn and, and uh, there's no question that a lot of the way that that company was run is been passed on to them and, and mm -hmm. it's still certainly present and prevalent. Yeah, I really do encourage listeners to go listen to that series. Oh, without question, yeah. So Dan, I don't know if you remember this, but when you and I first met, one of the first conversations that we had was about your involvement in the FDNY's Pipes and Drums Band. And what was so clear to me was that you were so passionate about it. So you joined the Pipes and Drums Band as a young member of the FDNY and have been actively involved playing at major events, ceremonies, New York's St. Patrick's Day Parade, of course, weddings and funerals. So what does being a member of the iconic band mean to you? It's really been quite a ride. Um, the band, I think, is second only to getting on the job, probably the greatest thing I've, I, I've accomplished and had the opportunity to be a part of. The band is truly held like nationally and internationally in a very high regard. We have the opportunity to really be like ambassadors of the FDNY. I've personally had the opportunity to play all over the United States. My only international travels with the band was to Spain. But prior to my getting in the band, they've been to Ireland, Italy, a handful of other places. And then even during the, uh, the wars in the Middle East, we had uh, one of our members who was a captain in the army took his bagpipes to uh, overseas with him and we had representation playing in the Middle East. I've gotten the opportunity to play at Madison Square Garden for the Rangers on the floor for the Knicks on the field at Yankee Stadium, City Field too, and if you want to acknowledge the uh, the Queens baseball team. 
<laughs> and um, it's just been uh, a tremendous honor uh, and an opportunity. But I think like the most important part to, to, to really dive down into your question there is uh, that like on those days of days when we have to honor those who have given their lives and service of the city, the band is there primarily to take care of our own, to be a part of that. There aren't, aren't many words for it. And it kind of reminds me of, again, bringing up Jim McNamara and um, his reverence to Vinnie Dunn speaking that uh, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And mm-hmm. I'm constantly reminded of that when I'm with the band. Yeah, I think there are certain things that have to be, they can't be explained. They have to be experienced, right? And you've definitely had a very unique and prominent you know, experience working with the band. What have you learned from being a member of the Pipes and Drums? That's been a pretty endless learning process, really. Uh, I befriended some guys that I really never otherwise would have had the opportunity to know. Some, like, absolute legends from the war years. You think, like, Jimmy Ginty from 42 Truck. He got on the job, I think it was 1957, retired as a fireman in 1991. And he was really the heart and soul of the band. He was our guiding light. My opportunity to be exposed to guys like him never, ever would have occurred had I not been a part of the band. I can do two degrees of separation to the 1930s just through him. I had the opportunity to know him. He got in the job in the late 50s, was broken on likely by guys who got in the job in the 30s. And then that spans the last 90 years of the FDNY and all through me having the opportunity to know Jimmy Ginty. And then the opportunity to march up Fifth Avenue on St. Patrick's Day with uh, okay. with everybody. The band's been around since 1962. So we're, um, I'm not going to do math on that one, but um, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's been... Uh, the, the, the things that the, that group has accomplished in, since 1962 has been really quite remarkable. The two biggest lessons I think I've learned from the band is the importance of the humility. And I know that is something that I know I constantly need a reminder of. Mm-hmm. Um, and that many of us also need a reminder of from time to time is just to be humble and, and to take a step back and to enjoy really the second lesson, second most important lesson I think I've learned from the band, which is that of uh, family and relationships and service before self. Mm -hmm. Uh, The band, like I said, the band really is there to honor that of the FDNY and to be an ambassador of the FDNY. And it's a privilege isn't even the right word. Why do you think the band is so significant in that it has a prominent role on some of the best days of people's lives and the saddest days of their lives? I think it really comes down to the fact that Music is a common language. It's a common language in celebration. It's a common language in sadness. Mm -hmm. It's something that you look at every culture around the world, they have their own form of music. The fire services, to a large extent, adopted the bagpipes as a Mm -hmm. uh, form of music. Our band in particular has a very strong Irish background, certainly going back to the, to, to the, the group of men who began it back in 1962. But when you think like from the traditional standpoint, like, right, weddings are really a traditional event that honor love, relationships, fellowship, happiness. And then funerals really largely are the same. And they honor love, relationships, fellowship, and happier times. And the one thing that is a constant in, in, in these two events is music. It's one of those things that has the opportunity to, it really just sort of like underscores the moment. When words can't really do a moment justice, music is there to fill that void. Mm-hmm. And I think certainly for the fire department, our band has had the opportunity to really fill that void. It's one of those things, right? You go to a wedding, nobody ever remembers some mediocre best man speech, right? Nobody ever cares if they're, <laughs> if they're all said and done. But everybody always remembers the band. The band is, it's always there. Um, and mm-hmm. I think the same can be said for those tragic moments and those, those sad times when we have to honor those who have 
gone before us. Um, mm-hmm. The FDNY has dealt with incredible loss over the last 156 years, specifically in the last 19 and a half. The debt that the FDNY has paid is just incalculable. Those opportunities to stand shoulder to shoulder with members of the band, particularly doing, during funerals when we have to honor, um, when we're honoring our own, it's a really powerful experience. Everything really sort of disappears. Um, and your sole focus is on that of honoring who we lost and their family and, and, and being there for the family. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, the band, I think it's uh, it really sort of transcends multiple things on the importance of of, it, of music, of people, of relationships, of, of all of that. Definitely. And I'm once again reminded of that conversation that we had years ago. And again, your passion for the band is clearly apparent. But now I want to turn to talking more operations. Okay. In 2016, you were promoted to lieutenant and sought assignment to the FDNY's third division, which is comprised largely of Manhattan's Midtown, Upper West Side, and Upper East Side. My understanding is that when you were assigned to the third division, you were hopeful that you'd wind up in ladder four and you were successful in that endeavor. I have learned through my work with the FDNY and leadership under fire that there are some leaders and members who are drawn to Midtown Manhattan or Manhattan in general. And I say some because I recognize that it's not everyone that finds it appealing. So what is it about leading and serving in Midtown Manhattan that resonates with you so much? It it comes down to the complexities and challenges of it all. The way the FDNY works, when you get promoted to any respective rank, you have to leave, generally speaking, at a minimum, the division that you work in more often than not the borough you work in. So I, I, I recognize that the ability for me to stay in Brooklyn was not super great. And so I wanted to uh, explore New York. There is no better place to be to, to explore New York than the heart of it. And I think mm-hmm. that's really Midtown Manhattan. The, the complexities and challenges of Midtown are really endless. It forces you to always be thinking and to always be on your game. Uh, our first new area encompasses Times Square. Um, we have literally $100 million apartments, city housing projects, Broadway theaters, multiple subway stations, encompassing virtually every subway line in the city. I think there's only two or three that were not first or second due to. Cruise ship terminals, the Hudson River, even have an aircraft carrier and a submarine that we respond to. There's almost nothing, pretty much with the exception of a private dwelling, um, that we don't have. <laughs> it's, right. Private houses are about it. But then mm-hmm. we still have all the brownstones. I mean, we still have the private houses. So it, it's really unique and fun in the, in the sense that in, in the course of a few hours, we could quite literally go from some of the most expensive real estate in the United States, if not the planet, and right. go right from that to another emergency in a subterranean homeless encampment built in like a, an abandoned train tunnel. You can it, it, literally in minutes go from 1,500 feet above ground in a high-rise office or residential building to uh, 150 feet below ground into a subway tunnel. The, constant barrage of novel and varied challenges is is really quite endless. And I think one of the things that's really unique about it is that things that seem like they should be straightforward always seem to have an element of friction that you never really quite predicted just due to renovations or the occupancy or the fact that it's a 130-year-old building that's got something going on inside of it that maybe the people inside don't really want the outside world to know about. There's always something that, that's happening. But the way I like to describe it a lot is when, when, when somebody says it can only happen in New York, <laughs> they largely mean there. Um, <laughs> you get the Fair enough. It's just, 
Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> the, the, the people we get to interact with are uh, really, really quite strange. Um, maybe not strange. It's pretty cool and unique. The uh, the theaters alone really bring a whole unique element to that area. But the people from out of town, the the the, the theater workers, the complexities and challenges of the theaters themselves. A lot of these buildings are 89 to 100 years old, beautiful buildings, right. with oftentimes hundreds and hundreds of people jammed you know, in the normal times. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of people jammed inside of them, haven't enjoyed a show uh, with these unbelievably complex sets and, and, and behind the scenes operations. So it, it's pretty cool. Um, just every day has the opportunity to bring about some of the coolest, strangest, most unique, challenging events that you can find um, from fires to terrorist attacks and multi-billionaires to the destitute. We really deal with everybody. You just touched on it. You mentioned normal times. So what are the tactical leadership challenges associated with being a fire officer in Midtown Manhattan during normal or ordinary times? And I mention it in air quotes because it's probably fair to say that while life in every corner of New York and America has been impacted by COVID-19, I can't imagine that there's an area that has been impacted as much as Midtown. And we'll explore the impacts of COVID-19 in a bit, but you know, what are some of those tactical leadership challenges? It's definitely been unique. Uh, one of the terms that I've heard lately that I actually really like is BC, the before COVID times. In the BC, to, to navigate everything in that area is just tremendously challenging, dealing with just the strong, ordinarily throngs of people everywhere, unbelievable traffic, and, and, and trying to deal with these unique emergencies amidst all the additional layers of complexity that generally exist in, in, in the normal times. Just simple things like trying to work in an office building where you, you're trying to get somebody out of a blind shaft elevator, but it's still a packed office building that's humming with business. Uh, and a blind shaft elevator is a little bit more of a unique situation where you might have an elevator that goes from the first floor to the 20th floor, but has no stops in between. So we have to figure out how to deal with turning off adjacent elevators and working with an elevator mechanic and largely impacting the business of that, that, that office building while we deal with what we have to deal with, oftentimes to the uh, dismay of the people who are trying to get, get their business done. So it really is, is unique in the normal times uh, because everything we do disrupts something else. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's sort of that equal and opposite reaction. And uh, to try and balance out what we're doing with the marching on of normal life, daily life has been ordinarily is quite a challenge. What do you enjoy most about leading and serving in Midtown? I really think I just enjoy, again, just the complexities and challenges of, of all of it. Again, for better and for worse, you're always on the world stage when you're out there with cell phone cameras and YouTube. And, and, and for those cities who are familiar with uh, the Citizen app, like, as soon as the doors go up, you're, you're, you're in the middle of it. It's a neat, exciting, challenging element that I never really had the opportunity to experience before. And it really is like when people think of New York City, um, they think of the area that we have the opportunity to work in. You know, it's not something that many people get the opportunity to do. Uh, and, and I think to be a part of that now and, and to work with the guys and, and, and girls in our firehouse and, and navigate these challenges and emergencies with them, I think that's a, a pretty cool opportunity. Is there anything that you dislike? I wouldn't say I dislike it because, like I said, I mean, I really, <laughs> I, I sought it out. Uh, it was a place I wanted to be. So as much as I do enjoy it, dealing with like the the unknowns and fluidity of daily life in midtown i you know i was broken in as a broken fireman and i, I that's that's my foundation i really do i miss going to fires and emergencies in brooklyn it's really how i developed as a fireman and and how i operate and so like that being said i'm thrilled to be 
where I'm at right now, but I certainly miss, you know, where I came from. It's mm. just what you know. As someone who's been actively involved with the FDNY's Mental Performance Initiative, I can assume you've spent a lot of time thinking about the tactical and operational challenges in Midtown Manhattan through a human factors lens. So what are some of the human factors challenges? It's, it's a consistent challenge to maintain motivation and to be at the tip of the spear preparedness all the time mm -hmm. in, in that environment. You're just getting, a, like I said, a constant barrage of, of inputs whether it be the people, the run volume, the emergencies, the people knocking on the door at the firehouse needing directions or assistance, or the complexities of trying to handle the uh, just the, really the, the the administrative end of uh, of that right. that area. We have engine companies that ordinarily uh, would do north of six thousand, and in some cases knocking on the door of seven thousand runs a year in some of the worst traffic in the country, and. These, these challenges are take a special lens, really, that, to, to, to use that term, uh, to, to, to navigate. We're spending so much time operating at emergencies in the, in the regular times uh, that it becomes a challenge when only a few hundred of those runs represent real legitimate actual fires or emergencies of consequence. Mm -hmm. Jason and I were talking the other day, and we actually have young firefighters who work in Manhattan who have to no fault of their own, responded to more terrorist attacks than right. fires of consequence. Mm -hmm. And that's a really frightening thing. So from a human performance standpoint, it becomes that much more important to understand how we operate and function at fires and emergencies and how we function in high stress environments and the necessity of building up the basics really uh, and, mm -hmm. and being prepared. But like I mm -hmm. said, that gets watered down when you're doing five, six, 7,000 runs navigating traffic, navigating a lot of this other stuff that, that just comes with the territory. We often speak about the, the green file cabinet versus the red file cabinet, where um, the propensity of the greater American fire service is to focus on the rare catastrophic events, um, such as the line of duty deaths and, and, and mm -hmm. such, which don't get me wrong, are important to focus on, but we really fail to focus on the thousands and thousands of successes that we have daily as an American fire service. And it, it, it's in a similar vein I think that it's challenging to work in, in Midtown, right? We, we have five, six, 7,000 runs that populates one particular file box where there tend to not be high-risk emergencies. You might do 5,000 runs, but when only a few hundred of them are high-risk emergencies, that, that really dulls that tip of the spear. And it's very important to maintain that preparedness and, mm -hmm. and readiness. It's very easy to hop, fall into being complacent. Um, we go to a great majority of automatic uh, fire alarm activations. In New York City, they're called class threes and class E's, depending on the type of building that you're responding to. Mm -hmm. And certainly the majority of them, you get there, it, maybe it's steam or burnt toast or something like that. It's we're just a malfunctioning alarm system. So the greater majority of the ones that we go to, they aren't really of any consequence. And then, but you often get lulled into this sense of complacency. So to maintain that personal drive and that personal um, motivation of preparedness um, is very challenging at best. And then certainly to try to maintain that, that mindset and approach as a company uh, is, is also a challenge. It's just, it's just that natural human nature to, to slide into complacency. So then let's focus on fire duty. In October, 2019, you responded to a fire alarm in a high rise commercial office building that was 22 stories. 
in accordance with FDNY policy, it was a single unit response for what is commonly an alarm, but turned out to be a working fire in a high rise office building, which would bring a considerable number of resources. So I'd love to unpack that event from a human performance perspective when you respond to a fire in a high rise building as a single unit. Well, certainly, right. So again, that came in as a, a class E alarm activation for us. Now, class E building is a building that meets specific guidelines with certain fire protection elements present. There's a predetermined staffing requirement that the building has to maintain uh, and, and like building engineers and such, fire safety directors, things like that. So these buildings are substantially more regulated, at least in theory, than um, mm -hmm. the regular, just a regular commercial occupancy. But an alarm activation occurs in these buildings. It triggers a response of a single engine company or ladder company. And that mm -hmm. alternates monthly because the, the companies in, in Manhattan tend to get hammered with these class E alarms quite a bit. So this particular one that we're talking about was we were, um, we, it was ladder, it was the month for the ladder companies to respond to the class E's. Coincidentally, in April of 2018, the fire at the Trump building that became instant national news uh, also came in as a class E alarm, which was mm -hmm. a um, triggered a uh, ladder company only response. That that particular ladder company uh, that responded first due to that, I happened to be working in on that day, and I was relieved um, about 20 minutes prior to this fire coming in. And to to bring the band back into it, I had a uh, band event downtown, and I took the subway downtown, and then as I walked into the uh, to the building, met up with the other guys in the band. A couple of them instantly looked at me and be like, were you working today? And I said, yeah, why? And they said, uh, yeah, there's a fire at the Trump building. And uh, naturally, I saw the intensity and consequence of that fire. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that LUF tracks a lot is we a lot of this where these whoop uh, biometric devices. Mm -hmm. And um, a couple hours later, I remember Jason sending me a text message because he knew I was working that day saying, hey, did you get any good data from that fire? And uh, my instant reaction was, well, I didn't go to the fire, but I got some excellent biometric data on the uh, reaction <laughs> to when I found out that I missed that fire. I love that story. <laughs> <laughs> At least one of us does. <laughs> so, back to the uh, question about the, this particular fire that came in as a class C for us. Um, so this fire was on Madison Avenue, which is on the east side of Manhattan. And it's a little bit of a ride for us, ladder two who was ordinarily first due there was they were on another run so we responded over to the to the class a and we got maybe it was a sunday afternoon around lunchtime and it was probably it was raining out i remember it was like it's just a miserable sort of october day and we got about halfway across town when manhattan um had received reports of smoke and they filled out the alarm uh to they transmitted the alarm which meant that we ended up having three engines a second ladder and a battalion chief respond mm -hmm. So by the time when we got there, we pulled up at the exact same time as the 8th Battalion did. So now we had an idea that there was something more than just a regular Clay C going. Um, but again, going back to that complacency trap, we respond to Clay C's all the time. And it's just it's normal for us to respond in a slightly um, dressed down manner. Because uh, oftentimes in the Clay C, you walk in, you check, you check in with the building staff, you try for the reset of the alarm system. If it resets, we're good to go. So... Now, at this point in time, when you're, we're, like I said, we had a long ride across town. We get the run now that, like I said, it's upgraded for smoke. And so now it, it, it really changes our posture immediately. Um, and you, immediately you heard the guys in the back getting their stuff together, getting dressed, getting their masks on, 
it, it causes an instant change in your operational outlook on how things are going to go. Um, you go from what largely is a pretty laid back run of the mill run mm-hmm. to now it's like, all right, we're going to a commercial office building, not even necessarily in our first new area. Things start changing very, very quickly. When we got there, like I said, we pulled up at the same time as the 8th Battalion. We walked into the lobby and instantly the um, building engineer said, there's something on fire on 11 or 12. We don't know. Um, at the same time as that, there was a woman who comes in and says that uh, her office is on 12 and that there's people up on 12. So we're getting a lot of inputs very, very quickly uh, mm-hmm. and that are changing our entire operational outlook immediately. And so we take the elevator up to nine and we walked up from nine to 11. We simultaneously forced the doors on 11 and 12. And then when we got the door open on 11, we had a heavy smoke condition. We knew that was where the fire was. So now at that particular point in time, I transmitted the 1076 to the battalion chief. So this triggers a response of at least 27 units that brings north of 110 responders, which is largely equivalent to a second alarm. There's a, a tremendous amount of resources uh, from various parts of the city that are responding immediately. From a human performance standpoint, it really emphasizes the importance of being in the moment, being present, and falling back on your foundational skills. Uh, the basics are really everything. So now we get up there, we have this heavy smoke condition. And from floor to floor to floor in these buildings, the layout is completely different. They're really large, uncompartmented office areas, just thinking like cubicles and such. Um, so now to try to locate that fire, we often talk about symbol isn't easy. So what we have to do at a fire Theoretically, it's pretty simple. We have to locate, confine, and control that fire. But the simple, the simple quote, fact of locating the fire in this particular occupancy was a massive challenge just by itself. It, it also just emphasizes um, the importance of communications, working with the engine when they get up there, where the fire is, and what the best mm-hmm. um, method to get the hose line in place is going to be. And it's funny. It kind of reminds me of uh, like Joe Madden. I always like to reference Joe Madden, particularly with the 2016 Chicago Cubs World Series. Mm-hmm. He has a, a lineup card that he always takes notes on that kind of remind him things during the game. One of the things that he really likes to hit on is do simple better. Because really, as at its essence, if you just do simple better, all the complex, complicated stuff really largely works itself out. Um, and the other thing that he, he really preaches is that, that the process is fearless. I can't be focused on, on an outcome if I fail at the process. So that's one of the things that when you go to a fire of uh, complexity such as this, I can't really focus on what the desired outcome is. I mean, certainly we all know what the desired outcome is. That's a successful, successfully putting the fire out, limiting damage, property damage, limiting injury and things like that. But we have to focus on that moment in time. It's it, it following the process exactly and doing what, what we're doing and doing it well. There's so much that you just shared that I'm just going to let the listeners digest and I'm going to move forward. And speaking of high rise fires in May, 2020, you responded to a reported fire in a high rise residential building on West 55th street. The fire was in an apartment on the 20th floor of a 20 story building. So the top floor and you rescued an unconscious occupant in the fire apartment. So it seems like that's the pinnacle of optimal performance for a leader who's living out his dream of serving in the FDNY. I have to ask, what's one thing that you did well at that fire? And is there anything you didn't do to your own satisfaction, if you don't mind sharing? Right. Yeah, certainly. So 
just a quick background on that fire. Uh, that was a unique situation in the sense that we had um, two younger uh, firefighters from the engine company, uh, Engine 54, who were detailed into ladder for that particular day. Um, so right off the bat, we were working with two guys who typically aren't in the ladder. And one of them was assigned to the can position, which carries a water extinguisher, works as part of the inside team. And the other um, gentleman was assigned to the roof position. So when, when we got up there, we, we opened up the hallway. Again, the department door was left open. So we had uh, a lights out, zero visibility condition. Um, so right off the bat, we were fighting an uphill battle and just locating the fire apartment. Once we located the fire apartment, uh, Randy, who was the, uh, the the gentleman who had the uh, can slash extinguisher position, the fire had actually was lapping out into the hallway a little bit. He was able to knock that down and um, push that back into the um, bedroom where the main body of fire was, which really allowed us to facilitate our search. Concurrently with all of this, uh, Sean, the other gentleman from the engine, had the roof position, was on the roof and was given very good, like, clear and cut, concise reports. And then um, everybody else just worked extraordinarily well together. Uh, Scott was the chauffeur. He went up to the roof uh, to make his position and ended up working with Sean and assisting him. Aaron, was the uh, he had the uh, forceful entry firefighter with us for that day. And when we found the victim, Aaron took the woman and took her down the hallway, down to the floor below, and got her to the elevator where our OV, um, Tim, was operating the elevator and was able to, to facilitate that removal. And then came back concurrent with all of this, the line was being stretched and put in a place by two probationary firefighters who were part of the novel team. So everybody really just fundamentally performed their basics at a super high level, which led to a fantastic outcome at this particular fire. And it was something I, I, I couldn't be more proud of in the way that everybody came together and worked together and, and, and led to, a, like I said, a very positive outcome with what ultimately was a life save. I think personally for me, some of the things that I can improve upon were uh, I tend to fail a lot at being good at being present, being in the moment. Um, I remember like I was always constantly trying to anticipate the next moves. Like I was, I was really sort of rushing, you know, sort of like similar to a pitcher, focusing on the next batter when he still has a three, two count on the current batter and he's, you know, getting ahead of himself a little bit. Uh, so I think there's just like a lot of um, mistakes are going to happen and they're really unavoidable, but we can make mistakes and have a positive outcome. Similarly, we can make, do everything perfect and have, and have a, 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 perhaps a negative outcome. And I think it's really just the importance of considering how luck and chance is a wild card really in the environment that we work in. But, the more that we can, again, going back to uh, focusing on the process, the more that we can fundamentally focus on the process, the more that we can eliminate some of the variables. Yeah. And just to end this part of the conversation on a positive note, you know, the department, the FDNY is recognizing you for this save. Um, I just saw that in the department order last night. So I wanted to say congratulations. Thank you very much, Patty. Yeah. So I've only been to Midtown Manhattan on a few occasions since the start of the pandemic in March 2020, just to record the podcast. You painted a picture of what Midtown Manhattan is like during ordinary times and all of the tactical leadership challenges. But what is Midtown like now, a year into the pandemic, and what are the tactical leadership challenges you're navigating currently? The best analogy that I keep using in terms of what Midtown is like post beginning of the pandemic. Um, it was like riding your bicycle really, really fast and then slamming on the front brakes mm -hmm. um, and face planting. That's what Midtown <laughs> feels like. Um, 
<laughs> just add it that was, face plant. <laughs> yeah, it, it really felt like a face plant. Um, it, again, we, we were talking before just about like the high tempo of Midtown and the excitement and the vibrance and the people and the energy and things like that. And almost overnight, that was gone. It, it, it largely feels sort of like a wasteland, much more so than the thriving urban, urban center that it really should be. But I think from a tactical leadership challenge, there's physical challenges that we have to navigate. Like there's a lot of boarded up buildings, right. there's a lot of abandoned occupancies. Now there's a lot of outdoor dining structures for these bars and restaurants that are doing everything in their power to save their, uh, their businesses. Um, we've navigated civil unrest, which is a whole separate conversation. Um, there's been a lot of physical challenges that we've had to navigate, but certainly, like you said, it, uh, it, it, it definitely um, leads to just trying to keep morale up and uh, happiness and, guys have been in that you know we've all been in a little bit of a funk for the last year and it's 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 difficult certainly but i think the prognosis is good i mean i'm maybe i'm a glass half full kind of guy which anybody who knows me might laugh at that um but i i i think you know the city is wounded there's no doubt that we're wounded and we're still bleeding but i think that the city is going to bounce back i'm in the middle of reading this really interesting book it's called triumph of the city by edward glazer Mm -hmm. so it was written in 2011, obviously well before the pandemic, but it really is an interesting discussion on why cities are important and why they're resilient. And it really comes down to really the diversity of the city, the diversity of the people who live and operate and own and function and visit cities, the diversity of the buildings and the building stock and the diversity of the people, I'm sorry, the, the businesses, um, the different types of businesses, um, all the different variables that make New York, New York. like. If you look at Detroit, following the uh, the automakers really pulling out, the, right. Detroit was really a one. It was like it was like a one ring circus, and it was very difficult for them to to mm-hmm. come back from that. New York City is like a thousand ring circus. There's a thousand different things that if one element struggles or fails, there's nine hundred other elements that are going to help to bring it back. And um, just that whole collaborative and the importance of uh, a collaborative lifestyle and collaborative uh, work environment, I think. New York is, uh, I think it's going to, I think it's going to bounce back. It's going to take time. It's not happening next year. It's not going to happen the year after that or the year after that, but it's going to be good. I like that perspective. Nothing against Detroit though. No, nothing against Detroit. As we begin to wind down, I wanted to ask if you don't mind sharing some more personal experiences, like what have been the impacts of working through the pandemic in a city that was obviously hit very hard by it? with loved ones at home who are navigating health issues. Um, yeah, that's definitely been a challenge. And that, that's certainly not lost on really virtually anybody nationally or internationally that's dealing with similar um, similar issues. In, in 2018, the November of 2018, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so we went through all of the end of 2018 and all of 2019 going through chemo surgeries and spending a lot of uh, time at, at Sloan Kettering and working with the wonderful people there. And then so January 6th of 2020, she gets the, the all clear. Things worked out really, really well, which Excellent. still couldn't be more happy about, uh, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, two months later, we find out, like, you know, we're looking to kind of catch up on the last year that we really spent on the uh, Upper East Side of Manhattan at, at Sloan. And then uh, the world gets shut down once again. Um, and then again, the unknowns and the fear and the not really knowing how things were going to evolve um, turned into a big challenge. But then 
as time went on and we got more information, we, we kind of dealt with COVID largely the same way we dealt with, with her cancer. And, and it was just, I mean, it's, it's one step at a time. And the mantra that I kind of kept using throughout the whole thing was that there's nothing to worry about until there's something to worry about. And then mm-hmm. when there's something to worry about, you deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really kind of largely pushed through COVID in that manner. Um, and I, I, I mean, I certainly discussed this quite a bit with her and I mean, her approach on a, on a lot of this stuff is like safe is subjective, you know, like you can eliminate risks, but to eliminate risks, you eliminate life. And so for us to maintain some semblance of a normal, fun, happy life, you have to maintain some semblance of life. And that, that was, you know, hitting that balance point was certainly, um, certainly a challenge. And uh, we took reasonable precautions, but we sought to balance them out with the efforts to live a normal life um, mm-hmm. as much as we could. And it really, it's really just a reminder of like, after facing such existential threat as we did back in 2018, 2019, mm-hmm. that you just can't let your, you can't let life stop you from living, which is really the, the outcome, I think, of all of that. And I think, you know, we really just sort of marched through the pandemic largely in the same way we marched through our battle with breast cancer. Thanks for sharing that. I know it's personal, but it's very powerful. And I appreciate the resilience of her and, you know, the perspective that you both share. Thank you very much. So lastly, I want to talk about the role that you play on the Leadership Under Fire team, which you joined a few years ago and have been involved in the development and delivery of several LUF programs. Last summer, Jason tasked you to serve as the program manager for Leadership Under Fire's inaugural online leadership development course. So can you describe the types of leaders who enroll in the course? Yeah, absolutely. We're partway through our second iteration of the uh, online leadership development course, the LDC. Um, And it's really both have been fantastic. Uh, we've, We've had an excellent, excellent group of people. And it's been pretty diverse in the respect that, like, we've had everybody from people, from firefighters who are really on the front end of their career to seasoned organizational leaders who are really just looking to either reinvent themselves or reinvent the organization, their organizations, or both. The discussions that we've had the opportunity to really facilitate have been quite great. Um, The cadre that we've been involved with spurred some, like, very nice conversations, a lot of critical thinking, a lot of very good discussions that takes an outside look, I think, at the fire service, but from an inside point of view in like, terms of how we operate. Mm-hmm. And that's been really quite refreshing. Um, and I think it's really these things that really make the program pretty unique and valuable. It encourages us to challenge ourselves, question the establishment, look at ourselves personally and professionally, really like, strive to be the best you, and um, to positively influence like what we have influence over. Because I mean, really, at the end of the day, you can only control what you can control. But um, the, the, the participants that have been diving into this uh, LDC with us have been really quite, uh, quite fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, you shared some of the development course with me because it's recorded and you're able to go back and view it. And it's really well done. And it's wildly fascinating just to witness some of the conversations that take place. So I just wanted to mention that from my point of view. So we have a bit of time to do a rapid fire Q&A. Are you ready for this? Yes, absolutely. What is your favorite military 
history era or theme? I can't really narrow it down to one, um, but I would narrow it down to the history revolving around World War II and, and also to, to Vietnam um, for obviously personal reasons like we uh, kind of hit on earlier. And who is your favorite military leader? I have a favorite military and a favorite political leader. I would put Churchill. I know he's more mm-hmm. political, but he also mm-hmm. was tremendously influential on the um, militaristic outcome of the war in Europe. And then discussing a lot of it, like the war in the Pacific, I would kind of fall back on like Admiral Salsey and Spruance and then and, and what they can, conducted out in the Pacific. Great. What's your favorite book? And again, this is really a hard one. I got, um, I recently read The Splendid and the Vile. Um, it's a book about, by Eric Larson um, that really focuses on Churchill and, and then the Churchill family. I've also recently read The Westies by T.J. English, which is really interesting because it really <laughs> hits on a lot of the, uh, the history of Hell's Kitchen and the area that I have the opportunity to work in now. Um, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention The uh, Great Bridge by David McAuliffe just discussing the, um, the, fe- the Roebling family and the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. Which is your favorite sports team? Um, I can't give up on the hometown, um, so I'm going to go with the Phillies. <laughs> and lastly, if you could lead and serve in any other time period, which would it be? I think I would default to um, pretty much my dad's generation. Um, I would like to begin, I think, my professional career sometime around the late 60s, early 70s, and then uh, push on to see how far I would last. Uh, but again, to quote the great Jim McNamara one last time, when you sign up for the fire department, you don't get to check a box in what area you want to work in. So you're kind of stuck with what you got. And on that note, I am going to say thank you for taking the time to share everything with me today. I wish we were doing this in a crowded bar in Midtown Manhattan. But like you said, maybe we will be back to that in the future. Soon enough, soon enough. Thank you so much, Patty. Thank you. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.